This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 65 of On Another Track. And for me, your perception on that type of side of things, and I'm not a psychologist by any means, was absolutely incredible. I mean, that's what has allowed you to survive and continue to survive. Your worth comes from you. It doesn't come from anybody else. People can tell you you're pretty, you're smart, all you want. But if you don't see it, it is worth nothing if you don't believe it yourself. That's the voice of my guest this week, Nadia Michael. She has the claim to fame of being the youngest youth worker ever in North America. Welcome along to my podcast series, On Another Track. We're here to explore people and places from around the world. We hear the stories that have transformed my guest's journey and help them get on another track. It's not always pretty, but if you need that practical advice to figure out the roadblocks ahead, then you can't go wrong by learning from other people's mistakes. It's an enlightening experience and a great journey. I first met Nadia through the job that I do as a part-time school bus driver. What's incredible is that when you meet somebody and you have that sixth sense, which I always seem to have, you kind of realise there's a very interesting story below the surface. With Nadia, it was paramount that I had to find out about it. Her life was not easy at all. In fact, it was really difficult, especially for her and her two siblings. Her mum was often not there and they had to survive on their own. This is a really tough story about trauma, but ultimately hope. Be warned, it's an emotional journey, but does Nadia have the strength to push through? I started by asking Nadia, first of all, how long has she been driving a yellow school bus? I've been doing it for over 15 years. My first son was just barely two years old. And I got into it because I can work from home. Excellent, yeah. And not have to do daycare. You know, and that's one of the big advantages of why I do it, as you probably know, is that, you know, I can do this, which I love doing the podcasting and the broadcasting. And at the same time, you know, I can still earn a little bit of money and put gas in the car, that type of thing. It's it's really practical, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. So how did you kind of first find out about the job? Because for a lot of listeners around the world, that they're not kind of used to this idea that, you know, bus driving or certainly taking kids to school uh, can be like a part-time position, which, you know, people in the community do. Because a lot of the time people are employed, you know, to be full-time at doing bus driving. But this is pretty much a part-time job. So how did you sort of get to find out about it? And how did, you know, you told me how it appealed to you, but how did you get started in the business? Good question, because I don't even remember what. I think what happened was my son was so young and I was really done doing, because I was working in retail at that time for a big box company and it was long hours and my son was actually in a special school because he couldn't speak very well so I noticed that these like little buses and I inquired and they're like okay and then I phoned up the busing company and said hey I would like to get to get the training how do I become a school bus driver and that's how I became a school bus driver and and for uh... People that don't know what's involved in school bus driving, and back then, 15 years ago, was it as simple as signing on the dotted line and you literally got thrown into a bus and off you go? No, no. Now that they have the MELT program, it's the same thing that I did way back then. Depend on the co- company, of course, but with my company that I started with, it was five weeks of training. Wow. So you had lots of in-class and then 
in order to do your uh, driver's test, we had to do your written test and then you had to get your practical test, like your learners and your driver's license. But the uh, difference was is when I first did it, we had to do first aid. We had to do level three. So you couldn't just get the bare minimum. I actually had to learn how to do CPR if something ever did happen. Also, how to deal with the mental issues, like how to deal with difficult children that um, are not verbal, but are very violent. And then, yeah. And then, of course, you had to drive about, I think it's 120 hours we had to put in. So I remember doing it really cold. It freaking was cold. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, again, for our kind of fellow listeners, you know, in Canada, obviously we, our temperatures are very extreme. We go plus 40 in the summer to kind of minus 40 or 50, isn't it, in the, in the winter sometimes. It can yeah. be very extreme. Yeah, it sucks. It, it's, a, it, it's interesting <laughs> how you just explained that because often it's not, you know, when I was, you know, first in Canada, I see these yellow school bus drivers. I thought, oh, that's an easy job. Anybody can do it. Yeah. But really anybody can do it, can they? I mean, you really have to have the aptitude and you really, de- like you said, you have to do that five weeks of training. Yeah. It's exceptional training, isn't it? It is. And a lot of people have that misconstrued idea that it's easy. It isn't easy. Driving for a living, no matter if it's class one, class four, class whatever, driving for more than like 20 minutes there, 20 minutes back. And it's not even just the the, the driving is difficult, but it's the mental uh, attitude you have to have to deal with these little terrorists. I call them terrorists because sometimes they are little terrorists. <laughs> and um, they're great, but you're dealing with a lot. And not only do you have to deal with the kids, you have to deal with the parents, and you have to deal with the school. So you you get it. You get it all three different ways. And it's just not an easy. I remember one of my friends that started, she's like, I thought this was an easy job. I only work for two hours a day. That's it. No, no, no. They don't train you for what happens afterwards with all the paperwork, what you have to do. Like, yeah, okay, your route might be 20 minutes, but with all the phone calls, you have to talk to the schools. Sometimes you could be working long hours yeah, and sometimes late at night. It's interesting you say that because, you know, that was the impression I had before I first came on. And of course, we both probably have some of the longest routes in in Sherwood Park where we live. And I'm due probably about five hours, just under five hours a day driving, which I'd never expected. And so it does impact on the other things I like to do. But having said that, uh, here's the thing. I do enjoy it. and, and, And I wanted to know why you enjoy it with all the kind of challenges that you have and I love the fact you call them little terrorists I call them little terrorists but you know but the point is it's a great description you never know what you're going to get each day but what what really apart from the kind of the hours and the fact that it fitted around your life when the kids were young what do you really like about the job and I suppose first of all what do you not like about the job what's the biggest challenge I mean you've already alluded to some of them so let's start with that first what are your biggest challenges do you think the biggest challenge is, is you never truly get paid for what you're worth. You really don't. As a school bus driver, you are known as just a school bus driver. And it's only been in recent years that we're actually at the same level as maybe special needs assistants. 
but before when you said oh i'm just it's like oh i'm just a school bus driver right it's not like hey i'm a lawyer you look there's this kind of like a stigma towards it like that you're dumb yeah, yeah right i get it like and i'm not dumb a lot of people don't know i have a huge degree behind me but i just choose not to use it wow i didn't know you see this is the whole point in this program this is what i love when we talk to people so let's let's talk about that later though let's just finish off kind of yep. some of the challenges with the job and um, what what other things do you think are you know the things that really are very hard to get across to people the thing is is that if you don't get a good school it's very hard to get a handle on your kids kids can be difficult at any time being a parent being a teacher but putting them in a little tiny like tin box with wheels it's like putting a tasmanian devil in a cage sometimes it just doesn't work <laughs> your descriptions are so wonderful i love them <laughs> so let's be fair now let's flip the coin over what are the some of the really special moments about being a bus driver, you know, especially for school children, you know, our future is really in your hands, isn't it? That's it. If you do it right and you respect the children, you get to mold them for years to come. Like you get to see them as they grow and you can see them as they mature. And you're like, holy crap, they have been listening. There is a glimmer in there. And it's just, it's like having children of your own. Like, I always say that these kids are the children of my own. Even though I have three of my own, they are an extension of my own. I always treat them in respect, but they know that. These kids, the, the first time they say, Miss School Bus Driver, you're the best person in the whole wide world. Or you get that uh, picture that has a school bus, school bus that says, I love you on it. It's totally worth it the hell and back you go through. It truly does. Yeah, I know. And actually, it's really interesting you say that. I mean, one of the things that I've found just from my experience is that, you know, we are custodians really of of the young people, aren't we? And it's funny, mm -hmm. the expression you use was the things that you said actually go in, you know, something you've said in the past that you actually remember and they actually appreciate you. And it's funny, it, that little appreciation yep. that comes back and however infrequent it is, is lovely because then it makes you feel that, okay, I'm doing an okay job. It's worth it. It totally is <laughs> worth it. You know, one of the, what was the, the expression I heard the other day? Oh, um, we, because one of my kids goes on three or four different buses because we do exchange buses where they have to go to a transfer station. And, you know, some kids are on three or four buses to get home at night. And one of the kids said to me, he said, I really like being on this bus. I'm going to be 12 or 13 at the end of this year and I've got to move schools. I don't want to move off this bus. Yeah. And when you hear that, you think, oh, okay, that's that makes it worthwhile, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It, like I said, it's those glimmer of hope because a lot of these children are, do not come from, even in Sherwood Park, they don't come from good homes. And to hear that you can bring some kind of like, sunshine in a cloudy day it's totally worth it it's totally worth it that's interesting you picked up on that i mean there's something i pick up on as well what is it a kind of sixth sense as a parent i mean what gives you that ability to pick up and what challenges they may be going through what what is it in you well when you live through it you can see it you can see when you have lived through what they're living through that's when you can pick it up those nuances, those little things that they think they're hiding, but they're not hiding. Because you know when you were trying to hide it, you knew exactly. Like 
it's like you know yeah it's just when you live through it you can see it take your time. And that's all i can say yeah take your time i mean i i know this was going to be quite a tough interview for us because we've talked very briefly about things um do you do you feel sort of strong enough to go there and just explain a little bit more to yeah. people listening what what that really means because I know you've had a pretty pretty tough um, life and and I know not not a lot about it I know a little tiny bit about it but um, if you if you're okay to take some deep deep breaths and just tell us about what that means. In order to truly know how people go through, you have to walk in the mile in their own shoes. The reason why I can see a lot of what these kids are can see is because I was just like them. I was thrown off to society as someone that wasn't worth it because they didn't have the right type of shoes or oh, she didn't take a shower, or, oh, look it, she didn't bring a lunch. Like, you can see all these things that we, or that most children take for granted, but um, not necessarily everyone gets to live through all that. As a person or as a person who's lived through abuse, an abusive home of a single mom, um, I had to survive a lot, me, my brother, and my sister. So I'm more in tune to picking those up because I've already lived through them. So I already, I'm already scanning for them already. Oh, not necessarily scanning for them, but it's easy. Like if someone's gone through war, they're easier to pick up those clues than I, who had never seen a war in my life. Totally. Um. See, I'm more in tune to that kind of stuff because I lived through it. Yeah, and 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 so, and again, it's it's a really difficult road to go down here. Okay, and I'm going to be very tactful. And I'm going to just ask you some very general questions about, you know, family first. So let's let, tell me tell me a little bit about family background. What do you know about your family? And you just alluded that you've got a brother and a sister. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm a twin. My my brother is my twin brother. Uh, and then I have a younger sister. And we were both. We were. My dad walked according to my mom. Cause I've never talked to my dad. Like I told you, I've never talked to my dad. Um, according to my mom, he walked away when just before I turned two. So I've never known him. I've never remember him. I don't even know what he looks like. I do know what his name is. I know where he lives. I just chose not to go down that road at this point in time. Can I just clarify that though? Let's be really honest with people because one of your siblings has gone down that road. Is that right? They, they did yes. reach out to him. Both of them have. Both of them have. So, okay. Yeah. Put that in perspective. And I'm sorry to interrupt you because I think this is a really important point that they've reached out. What sort of response did they get? Well, my dad really, my dad, okay. According to my mom, the girls were nothing to him. So as being a daughter, I was 
told throughout my whole entire life that I was worth nothing to him. Um, according to my grandma, too, that I was raised by most of my life, um, according to her, my dad threw me across the room because I meant nothing. But my brother, he walked on water. He always wanted the son, but didn't want the daughter. So I was just, so I lived through my most of my life knowing I was worth nothing. That's tough. To the one person that's supposed to save yeah, me. Yeah, that's really tough. That's really, really tough. So how did your brother and your sister get on when they reached out to him there? He really, um, when my brother went to go see him, um, at first it was okay. Um, but my brother really needed to see him. But he told me that uh, my dad had a different point of view what happened. Um, but he also said my dad is not mentally uh, well. He he deals with schizophrenia. It's his, his lot in life. Same with my sister. My sister tried to talk to my dad. He only wanted to know what my mom was doing. And if she didn't give her the information, then she was no longer used to him. So he walked away. It's a pretty severe point of view, isn't it? But like you say, if there's mental illness or any type of abuse going on in terms of substance abuse or anything like that, because I, I don't know the story behind that, then you can imagine these very polarised thoughts coming from your dad. But can we put a name to dad, by the way? Are you prepared to let, let us know what his, his name is? Uh, his his is the same as my brother, Terrence. Terrence, okay, so Terrence, okay. So, okay, I can understand from your perspective why you were very cautious about not reaching out to him. And I think, you know, that's obviously the ball is in your court. And it, it must be difficult because where did mum kind of appear in the equation? I know you were just going to talk about it, uh, her, before I asked the question. So tell us what mum was doing, her perspective, and what her life was like. My mum was the youngest of six kids. My grandma was an army wife. So my grandpa was in the army. And he eventually came back from the war, but he was never the same. In those times, my grandma was a very stern person. It was her way or the highway. And my mom didn't like that. So at a very young age, so at 16 years old, she rebelled. And that's when she got a with my my dad, Terry, at that time, because that was something that my grandma didn't want. So it was the forbidden fruit. My mom got pregnant at a very young age, and we were the consequences of those young, misguided decisions she did. And I think she honestly blamed us for not being able to live. We took away her life. We took her, we took away her freedom to do whatever she wanted, to be with anybody she wanted. So because, because we were, when we came in, we were in a, such a hard time of, because we were born in 1977, so that 
ages me a bit. The times were just getting it um good, but she lived through a lot of she was the youngest. She got away with a lot of things and she didn't like what she was getting in. She didn't like losing her freedom. So I get that. Oh, it, totally. I mean, I think, you know, it's it, like um, youngest kid syndrome is, is really leaves a bad legacy for a lot of kids because, like you say, you're the one that always gets things done for. You can always defer to the older siblings, you know, they do the work. Yeah. So when the youngest comes out into the wide world, it's, it's the most difficult transition for a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you say, she was trying to assert her independence and she wanted to rebel against your mum being really strict or, sorry, your grand grandma being really strict yeah military background totally understand it because that's where i come from you know it's one of a rolling stone gathers no more so again you never really put down roots you don't really have a kind of a Mm -hmm. you know like um a ring of friends that you can rely upon you don't really have family in many respects because you're thousands of miles away from your family so it can be really tough and i understand you know explaining the kind of background to that what's mum's name by the way let's put her name to mum uh cheryl so Cheryl, so Cheryl's still alive. Your dad's still alive. Is that correct? No, my mom, my real mom, passed away in December. Oh my goodness! I'm sorry to hear that. On Boxing Day. Yeah, that's yeah. a tough one. That's a really, really tough one. What was your relationship like with mom? Most of it, uh, when I was younger, was very volatile, very bad, because. As a young person, you don't really truly, you won't know what your parents went through unless you become a parent yourself and you're dealt with by similar circumstances, then you truly believe you could give them a little bit more slack. You don't give them, I've never given her like a complete cop out because everyone has their choices. But I can understand the decisions she made now. Before she died, we were in good terms. Good. So I got to say my piece. I got to say what I needed to say way before she even passed away. So at least I she she left this world knowing that she wasn't hated. Well, that that's good. And in some ways, and very brave of you to actually attempt to, you know, build that bridge, which I think is remarkable considering some of the circumstances you, you've indicated. I mean, it's just been very, very difficult. Let's um, let's just get a timeline here. So you were born in 1977, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And so you already had an older sibling, which was your, was it your brother or your sister? I can't remember. My brother's older by like 13 minutes because we're the twins. Of course, yes. And we're the oldest. Okay, that makes sense. And then I have a younger sister. And what's your sister's name? We didn't get to know her name. Andrea. Andrea. Okay, so so your young family, um, mum's really finding it pretty tough. Dad's probably flown the nest already, like you say. And so your mum's trying to struggle on her own. What were circumstances like and what happened? What was the timeline and what happened to you and, and your siblings? My mom, in order to survive, because she was a single mom all of a sudden, um, my grandma moved in because my grandpa died. So she had nobody. But my grandma went blind at a very young age because she had diabetes. My grandma raised us. So 
my mom would take off for weeks on end and we wouldn't know where she was. There's many times that we had to learn how to cook on our own because you have to in order to survive. My grandma was, she tried her best, but she was blind. So my mom's way of uh, paying for the bills, I guess, was to fraud people. She was a con artist. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bizarre way, but it's it's interesting she figured out some way of making money. Not that we're advocating that's a great way of making money. No, I'm not advocating at all, but it's amazing what human nature can teach you how to do to in order to overcome and adapt. My mom, with all her faults, I may not have chosen that road, but my mom chose that road. I don't know what circumstances, well, I can get, probably allude to, but I can't really tell you the exact. But I think a lot of it, if she didn't, if my dad was in the picture, she wouldn't go down the same road as she, she would have gone down. Because there would be no need. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Circumstances. It always is circumstances. And I suppose, again, put it in perspective, she had very limited choices. There was only one other choice, probably, and she didn't go there. Well, yeah, because she never finished high school, right? So back then, when you didn't, like, even like in the 70s, it was a totally different world, even for women, right? It's not like now that there's a lot more rights and and programs out there for women that are single parents, then they were even for my mom when she was a single parent, there was only thing that was there was family allowance and welfare. And and again, to put this in perspective for listeners all around the world, because we go right around the world with this program, this we're talking about Alberta in Canada, aren't we? Northern Alberta. So yeah. specifically yeah. Edmonton, I imagine that this is where you were born. Edmonton and BC. And BC. Yeah. Okay. I mean Alberta and BC. I've been all over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because really in the seventies and even into the eighties, women did not have many rights here. In fact, it there were mm -hmm. the whole law was stacked against them greatly and yeah. there was very limited resources. Okay, so mum became, as you mentioned, a con artist. So so what were some of the things that were evident in the way that she managed to procure money? What did you see? What was the evidence? Well, <laughs> evidence is when she was, um, we were forced into foster care and she was charged with fraud. Oh my goodness gracious. So that that's how serious <laughs> it was, yeah? What the evidence was is that we were always... We always had to move. There is never a time that we were in one place for more than three months at a time. We, there's, I remember there was at the end, I think it was in May, one school year. And it was my sixth school I was in that school year. Oh my. Six. So to put it in perspective, like what is it, 10 months? So if it's six, I was moving every month almost every month, couple, sometimes maybe two months because she would steal people's checks or money and cash them. Or she would use their blank checks and um, sign. So yeah, like a lot of that money we didn't see because my mom was never around. So it's a very interesting life. 
Like it was a very, it was a very weird life. I just thought it was normal. Well, I, again, let's put it in perspective. I mean, being an army kid myself, I kind of know what that feels like moving. I moved every couple of years, you know, so it was always very difficult to make friends with new people. You had to adapt very quickly and you had to make friends and it was very brief, you know, and you lost those mm -hmm. people. So I kind of get an insight a little bit into your life, but what I don't have an insight into is, mum or dad not being around because that was the, the thing that we were very lucky with. We had the structure of the military that allowed us to have mum and dad all the time. But not having them around and then going to foster care, I mean, explain the first experience of what happened in foster care. What what was that like as a young person and what age were you? Well, I was 13, finally, when the, the chips finally fell. Um. But because we moved around so much, the social services couldn't get a hold of us because the, the, they would get to a point where we were and then we'd be off or gone. And it would be like in the middle of the dark of the night, like we'd be like one, we'd be there for supper and then in the morning we'd be somewhere completely different. Um, and most of it was my mom saying, hey, we're going on a camping trip. Oh my. And we would live in a, t a tent hated i will never i will never don in a tent ever in my life for those people that they think it's a glamorous it really truly is not glamorous as a kid trying to get uh ready for school and then in a tent and then pretend everything is a-okay for the next morning so you can go to school it's not exactly we lived a gypsy life. This is what I probably would say, more like what I would say. Because we lived in tents. We lived in um, sometimes hotels, depends. Um, or in cars, in our car. Like it was just like, but there are some places I can, even though it was kind of crappy and there was kind of like, there was always some good in every crappy um. I saw the most beautiful places in BC ever that probably no one will probably ever see. But on this flip side, I didn't get to see them for much long. Like it was a very, very frequent. To go from that to foster care, I hated life by the time I hated there. Trusted nobody. Trusted nobody. After the trust is gone. Because you don't trust when you're in that situation. The only person you can truly trust is yourself. Absolutely. Not even your siblings. Because your siblings are just as ruthless as you are. There's many times my brother tried to kill us. Upteen times. Seriously. Um, We were very angry children. That's all I'm going to... Uh, the police knew us very well in certain areas. Because we did come back to certain areas of, we always came back to Peace River, always. No matter how far we went or how far south or how north or west, we always wanted back to Peace River because that's where my mom was born. We're halfway through this incredible journey with Nadia Michael. Next, I want to ask Nadia, why was she always being pulled back to Peace River with her mum? And where did she get the strength to carry on? It was home to her. It was home to her and easy to hide. 
it was very easy to hide out there because Peace River is very dangerous. Like my mom was native. There was when you saw her, it was like yeah. So culturally, she was from that kind of uh, you know First Nation. So she felt like home there. She, she family was still even well later in her life. Family was home. She just couldn't. She she lost her way. So it was her way of getting back on track for a little bit, and then shortly after that, we would have to run back and go somewhere else because she'd be frauding someone else and we had to quickly escape town so that she wouldn't get fought out. Okay, I, I just got to go back because here's the amazing thing about what you just said, okay, and I was listening really carefully. You said even in all that chaos and that craziness and that moving around, and this is an incredible statement you made, there's some, some beautiful things about it, which, you know, for listeners listening in who have never experienced that kind of childhood, that kind of, well, it wasn't childhood, it was an upbringing that was just different every day. I mean, I couldn't ever even understand that myself being an army kid because at least I had two years of stability. You had no stability, but you still said there were some beautiful things that still happened. As a human being, how can we have that capacity to even feel that when we're in a, a permanent situation of feeling nobody cares? Because you have to, else you get swallowed up. Okay, so where did that strength come, Nadia? Where did that come from? Because you know what I'm seeing here, right? And this is what you're, you're an absolutely amazing person, right? I have so much respect for you, right? Because we just happen to just have conversations five minutes, you know, in the afternoon as we're walking back to our cars. And I picked up on the fact that you had this amazing story. And it is an amazing story, okay? And this is why... I wanted to interview you because for me, the people I meet in my life all around the world in my army life and as an army brat, most people have great opportunities. You had zilch, you had zero opportunity, right? But you created a life out of that. How the hell do you do that? Because I remember saying one day to myself, I will not allow my mom to win and I will not allow the world to win over my own future. The only person that can determine your future is yourself. And no matter how crappy your life can be or what circumstances that you could be in Africa with no, like it, Africa is a prime example. Like look at how destitute they are. And they're the most joyous people. Why? Because they refuse to let circumstances determine who they are. Everyone has their story. Everyone has their woes. It's whether or not you allow them to defeat who you are. And I'm too stubborn to allow that happen. I am too... My mom hated me when I was growing up because... I was always a stubborn child, always. I never, I was always the fighter, always. My mom hated it because I never followed blindly. I questioned everything. I was my grandma at that point. She always said, you're just like your grandma. You're too pig-headed, too stubborn, and you don't take no for an answer. 
Well, I don't see that as a as a bad thing personally. I love it. I love it in you. I think that's what's defined you as a person. I mean, what I see is an immensely strong woman coming through the screen here, you know, talking to me, who's, you know, revealing our heart. And I think that's an extremely brave thing to do. But I'm so glad, so glad you were stubborn. That, that for me, is it, well, it's such an amazing attribute. And I, I often say that to Tracy, my good lady, you know, I'm a stubborn Scotsman. I dig my heels in. When it comes to points of principle and people being hurt or people being affected by somebody else's actions, I'm the first there to defend people. Because you know what? Those people need to be defended. They need to have somebody hold them up and protect them. And I, I see that in you. Well, I'm Scottish too, so it's good. My dad's Scottish. I knew it. I, well, the Celtics, the yeah. Celts are, are very very much like that. It, it goes right through the bloodline. Yeah. You know, because you often find uh, people that came to Canada, a lot of Scots and Irish came to Canada in the 18th century, 19th century. And, of course, then they had took on an Indigenous wife, a First Nations wife, and that's why we have that mixture. We have the French mixture and we have the Scots Indigenous mixture as yeah. well. And it, it, it creates amazing kind of personalities, you know, these very independent people. But some people just fall by the wayside, you know. But I suppose I, I'd love to sort of do the timeline because we've got to when you were kind of like the 13 age, and that's such a critical age for a young woman, such a critical age. You know, a young guy can get away with a lot of things at that age. He just goes out and plays soccer or knocks a hockey puck around. You've got other things going on as a young woman in your life and you have to deal with those things. So how did how did things change? Did things change for the better when you got to 13? You know, when you then start to look at foster care and things like that? Or was that really another can of worms? Well, eventually when I got out and I got to, I fought to stay out. I was taken away from my mom. I knew if I went back to my mom, I would become another statistic. Even at 13 years old, I knew. I was smart enough to figure it out that if I went back to my mom, I would end up dead. Oh, gosh. Honestly, that's just the way it is. Because up north, you get interested in the drugs. You get all that kind of stuff. It's a very rough life. You either get knocked up you're dead either inside or six feet under. But I just knew if I didn't get out, this was my chance. This was my chance. So social services, I don't know if you know a lot about the social services in Canada. Social services in Canada believe that the parent, the kids should own, no matter what, stick with the mom. No matter what. Even if the kids skip, say, no, I don't want to, they'll fight. So I had a good foster parent um, that believed the, in what I said and gave me the resources to fight back. It wasn't until I turned 16 when things started to actually calm down because that's when I finally got the P I was a permanent guardianship order, so the PGO. So I was a guardianship to the state. So my parent was actually now the government of Canada. Wow. So that's pretty significant. So essentially I was an orphan. But it took us a long time because it takes a while for the government to take away a child in Canada, no matter how bad it is. And even if my mom should have never been a mom. 
honestly. She was too selfish. She was, she, and she didn't have the, the self-sacrifice that you need to be a parent, to be a good parent. Because when you have a child, your life ceases to be yours. This is the fact, the fact of the matter. My mom did not have that. We were there as a paycheck to her. That is all. And she told me that to my face. She's like, I want you back because you're nothing but my paycheck. I need the money that comes with you. Oh, my goodness. At 13. Now, this is something that you I don't know if you know. At 13 in Canada, you can decide where you want to go. Correct. I do know. This is the, this is the saving grace. Honestly, to my my apparel, the saving grace is when I came into foster care at 13 years old, because at 13 years old, I can actually say no. It's a it's an uphill battle, but I can decide I have the right as a child to say, no, I'm not going with my parents. But if I was 12 years old, I would have been forced. If I was 11 or younger, I would have been forced to go to my parents or my mom. At 13 years old, I was given the option to fight to stay away. That was the saving grace, is the age. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for that. I do I do understand yeah. that age because having gone through a fairly mucky divorce, my kids finally decided they'd had enough, and at 13 they were able to move to, to live with me, my two girls. Like I said, I totally understand that yeah. age is so significant. So put a name to your foster parents and, and tell me what happened then. Well, finally, I had someone that accepted me for all my good and my all my bad. There was, was a long haul loss. But here's the thing. I didn't need therapy. I didn't talk to no psychologist, no nothing, because they were useless to me, because all they wanted to talk about is my feelings. And I wasn't, talking about feelings is okay, but to actually move forward, you need to put your feelings aside and move forward. You can't live in the moment. You have to keep going. Feelings only bog you down. And feeling sorry for myself isn't going to help me either. So I became... Uh, an employee of the government, the social services in Peace River, actually. I became the youngest, youngest. So now here's all the good now. I became the youngest youth worker in Northern America to train foster parents and to actually counsel kids within foster care. Wow, fantastic. At 16 years old. At 16, that is amazing. You you did incredible. Wow. Yes. Uh, when I was taken away from my mom, my uh, foster parents homeschooled. I could not read, could not write. I could barely talk because I never went to school. Long enough to learn. OMG. So so this is really interesting. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you continue the story for a second. But 
my dad was in a similar situation when he lived in the back streets of Glasgow. He he got dragged up. It was a gypsy family. Mm-hmm. Okay. He moved from place to place. They eventually ended up in Glasgow. He couldn't read and write. He was 14. And, uh, you know, how do you get out of those situations? So they, they homeschooled you. So within a very short period of time of that three years, you did amazing things. They did amazing things. Yeah, like my foster parents did the CAT scan. So the Canadian achievement tests, I, we were at a grade two level. So we had to go back all the way from grade two. So imagine at 13 years old, another blow, you're supposed to be in grade seven, grade seven, and you had to go back to grade two because you could not read, could not write. You know what? I just started to interrupt you trying to throw it. That, that's a critical time, right? That grade yeah. one and two. If you don't get those, you're stuffed. You're really stuffed. So, yeah, yeah obviously you had some a small amount of education. You could understand concept and things. And like I say, you could barely talk. You could, couldn't could read or write. But you did understand some concepts. So hopefully that was the basis to build up those three years or how many years? It would be five or six years, wouldn't it, near enough? that you missed? Well, I graduated when I was 16. So I went from age 13, starting at grade two level, graduating when I was 16, entering university at 17. Incredible. I mean, that is just amazing. I mean, you you must have a natural ability, a natural intelligence and IQ. Your IQ must be amazing, really, because... I never got tested. Nor do I care. No, no, of course. But Honestly, I'm just trying to yeah. put it in perspective. For you to achieve that in three years is 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 short of absolutely stunning. I mean, you you know, most people couldn't do that. So tell us, okay, so you tell us the rest of the story. Okay, so graduated when I was 16, became the youngest youth worker, was the very first one to get a full scholarship and actually go into university because... When I went to, when I was PGO, when you go to PGO, you are given by the government a certain amount of money to go back, to, to go to school, to go to university. Because I was the first one, I was a trailblazer because they didn't even know how to even do the paperwork for it because they never done it before. So it was like, oh, wow. And then I was able at 17, I was also a level four foster care trainer. So I was the same level as my mom. So when you are given such, this is why I never say to one of my kids, even my kids, you may be getting the rod end of the stick, but it doesn't mean this is the end of the stick for you. Like you this is just the beginning. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And don't look back. Just keep going. Never look back. Just put one foot ahead and just run. That's all you can do. Because you can't control anything else that just went past. Past is past. You can't change it. Your, your perception of things is amazing. And, uh, you know, you're talking like somebody... I, I interviewed a guy who was a psychologist probably four or five episodes ago, Dr. Yapko, he's got all these qualifications and he's way high up in the world and he goes and talks all around the world. And you said exactly what he said. He's he's a learned man in terms of he's studied and all that sort of thing. But you really had the 
the lessons of life. I mean, they really focused your mind, didn't they? You thought survival, I've just got to keep going. I can't look back. And that's amazingly perceptive. Because I think, you know, it's easy for somebody to get into a point of depression, isn't it? To get really down. And that, I mean, if you're a candidate for that. I mean, at the end of the day, if you look at everything, everything that happened to you, you could easily have got depressed about the situation. You probably did get down. I did. Um, it's still, don't get me wrong, there are days that are better than others. Yeah. But I don't I don't stay there for long. Well, that's the key to it. And I think you're absolutely right. This is what he said, is that you are writing your future. You know, if you dwell on the past, that's going to influence your future greatly. And he said that the only way that you can change that is by not referencing the past or at least dwelling on the past. That was the important thing that you said. You've got to put one step in front of you and you look forward and you get on with it. Yeah. Find what you can learn from it and then keep going. The past can define who you are by not what you will become. I love that. That's such a perceptive statement. I love what you just said there. That's amazing. Okay, tell us what happened next. Your university, where did you go? What university? I went to King's University College to get a BA psychology in, in psychology, of course. And how was that? You know, you, did you feel as if somehow you had arrived, you had an opportunity, you grasped it and you then took that journey and you got to university and you arrived or was there a lot more hard work ahead? Well, there's a lot more work ahead that I found out now because when you, you go from like almost to nothing, then all of a sudden you're on the, you're, you just can't stop. You're just on this freight train, but eventually that freight train has to stop. And that happened when I was just barely 18. I got in with a bad guy. My mom said not to get it. Remember, like, even if you try not to repeat the past, it always repeats the past. I repeated my mom's past. My mom said not to get with some guy. And what did I do? Get wrong with this guy. And I got pregnant at a very young age. Okay, so so what practical things did you do? Because you're a survivor. Oh, yeah. What did you figure out? What did you figure out at that stage? I figured out that, well, one, I wasn't going to be like my mom. But it was a very scary time because you don't, you always question, it's like, okay, how much is nature and how much is nurture? And my fear until I had him, I was like, oh, am I going to turn out to be like my mom? Yeah, but that's quite natural. So you, you were kind of beating yourself up. Yeah. But what did you do? You dusted yourself down. What did you do? You dusted myself up and said, no, I'm going to be the best mom as I could possibly did. So what I did is said, I will not, I will not have a kid out of wedlock. So I forced ourselves to get into a marriage that we necessarily should have never gotten into just because I wanted that stability, stability for my kids that I did not have. So I forced the issue. We were, it was not a good, it was not a good marriage. But made it for 10 years. Incredible. And then I called it quick. Yeah, incredible. But what you did do is you laid the foundation, be however rocky that foundation was, you laid a foundation for your children. And that is totally respectable. I mean, you know, like good or bad, yep. you, you decided to go for it. Okay, so you last 10 years. What happened next? Uh, so... Then I had my youngest son. I was working four jobs just to, so when I was school busing, 
So we wake up so early in the morning and then go to bed so late at night and still be a parent, still be the wife while my husband just sat on his butt and pretty much did one job. That ended that. That didn't last very long. I told him to get out. And we was like, screw this. I'm not, I'm better than this. Screw this. Actually, the wake-up call is when my son started hitting me and repeating what his dad was going to do. Oh my. And I knew at that point in time, I had to break that cycle. I broke the cycle when I was 13 years old for myself, like my childhood. I had to break that cycle back then. I had to break that cycle when I was 16 and continue on with my, my university and finish my school. And I had to break the cycle that my mom did in the marriage and ended I ended a 10-year marriage that I could have stayed in if I really wanted to if I really said like the most people would say I'm staying it for the sake of children honestly you're not you're honestly are doing it worse because the kids see absolutely everything they hear every word and they actually take it all in totally they're like sponges so I ended that. I ended, that was the final, final cycle I had to break. Because I got in that same cycle that my mom probably got into. I will still try. I'll just try and try and try and try. Okay. So what happened next? You know, you made a major decision. I know I've gone through a few separations and they're not easy. How did you get yourself back on another track? How did you dust yourself down? Well, you could easily have just said, okay, when I said it to my ex-husband, I said, like, look, some people are better being friends than they are being married. Get out. He's like, well, maybe we can try. No, I tried for 10 years. This is, I told you this, for 10 years, we need to separate. And I didn't even give him a separation. It went from to, we're done. There is I don't go back to the past. That was my model. I do not go back to exes and I don't go back in my past. I go forward. You just repeat it over and over again. So I walked away. I dusted myself off and said, oh, look, I turned out to be my mom in the first place. Now I'm a single mom. What do I do? Is it sick? It does. It does. No matter how you try, you try, eventually you come back to where you, where you started off in the beginning, right? It's whether or not you what you do with it. And I said, I'm not my mom. I am not my mother. I did not make the same mistakes. I made made similar mistakes. Don't get me wrong, but I did not do the same mistakes. My circumstances are different because I know that I was strong enough to do it by myself. I did not need no man, no other person to tell me what I can do and what how I can raise my own children. And I don't need someone else to tell me this. That's the difference with my mom and I. My mom looked through the validation of other people to tell her that she was a good mom instead of looking at her own children and that's what got her into the problem. Okay, so you're now at this uh, fork in the road, so Y junction, as I call you can go left or right. What happened next? I took a leap of faith. 
I took a leap of faith that I could actually do what I said I could do. Trusted in myself. Found myself again. Because in a very abusive relationship, you lose yourself. You lose because you have to kill yourself in order to be in an abusive relationship. You honestly, there's a point in life you go into your marriage that's even crappier that you have to say, in order to be in this relationship, I have to destroy who I am wow. to be in this relationship. That's pretty severe, isn't it? Yeah, you have to. Though. In order for it to work somewhat, you have someone has to die. Someone has to kill themselves, their sense of self. So I had to find who I was. I mean, build up to that person, that strong person that I entered that re relationship before, the strong, independent person that could take on the world. I had to find her back. I had to find her back. I lost that person. I had one guy that, that I was, he was a friend before. He was a really good friend. And I ended up marrying him. He helped me through a lot. Because it was many years of hell and back to get myself back again. Because you destroy, you start all over again. It's like a phoenix. You just, you're in the ashes and you come out of the ashes and you become, you're never that person before, but you're a better person for that before. Because you learn, you learn what you can and cannot do. I don't what you cannot or cannot do, what you choose, you will accept, and what you choose not to accept. And as being the age I was finally at oh, 28 at that time, because we got married at 18, I was much older, much wiser. And I was not going to be with someone that it was going to, I had to destroy myself to be in. And, I, and I'm not going to get into a relationship at a convenience. And this is where I am today. Oh my, I, uh, I, I just, uh, I need a stiff drink after listening to what you, what you <laughs> just told me. I mean, it's just been an absolutely tumultuous journey. I mean, it's something that, would put most people actually in a grave. I, I'm going to be very frank there. Most people would not have survived what you've survived. But you have got here and you have reinvented yourself. You've dusted yourself down. If you were to look back, and I know we've done a lot of soul searching today and I know that's been a difficult journey. What do you think is the thing, the trait that you've learned from either your grandparents or from somebody in your life or in your family that's really helped you to stay strong and to keep going? Has there been anybody that's really helped that process? Uh, there was not one person that defined who I, maybe the person I am. It's just a, it was moments of different people. I never had that one person that stood out that keeps each one of them show me what is good and what is bad. But 
I would probably say my grandma's part of my my grandma because I was just so much like her that my grandma truly did love who who I was, but she was already broken by time I came. So it's like, but she never really said, I love you. She never said, I cared about you, but her actions showed that she did. There was a lot of sacrifices that she made for us as parents. Like prime example, she gave my mom full control of her finances so that she made sure that for the short period of time she lived with us, that we actually got food. But it never went to us. It went, my mom went to did bingo. But my grandma tried. So she was the only one, only one that stood us for the brief period of time. Everyone else turned their backs and walked away. Except for my foster parents. But my foster mom, I I guess she's my adopted mom now. At 18, she did adopt us finally at 18. And I took on their last name. Well, I was going to ask about names. Uh, I did briefly ask before, but I think it got kind of buried in another question. What's the name of your foster parents, just so that we have that on record? Uh, Sharon Bloom. Sharon and David Bloom. Maloon, did you say? Bloom. B-L-O-O-M. Oh. B like flower. Oh, right. Okay. That, okay. Got you. And um, so they, they officially adopted you at 18 then, eh? Yeah. So at 18, it was official. I had a really good at the last year of from 17 to 18 social worker. And his name was Rick Beeks. He was really great. He listened to everything that we wanted. He actually, when you turn 18, I'm not sure if you know this, as a foster kid, your access to your foster care file but you're you it's only the redacted areas you only see what they want you to see he allowed me to see the unredacted area, good or bad and i actually found out that i have adopted dog i have adopted brother out there gosh really my mom had a another child at a wedlock when we were 12 years old and uh, she gave it up for adoption, but it was a closed adoption. So we won't know who actually adopted him or her, but yeah, it was, that's how I found out was through the redacted files because my mom had to give it up to social services at that point in time. And it was adopted out. So here's one of the things that I just loved. Again, your your perception and the things that you say are amazing is that you didn't have one person that specifically helped you on the way, but you had pieces, you had little pieces. And so your, your life was really like a jigsaw, wasn't it? It was just piece at a time. You just had these pieces and yeah. you were slotting them into place as you were going along, you know, and held onto those pieces. And that was a, a wonderful expression, you know, a piece of somebody that just helped, you know, and, you know, um, 
we, we are going to run out of time, unfortunately. And I know that uh, I've taken you on a hell of a roller coaster ride here. And I'm really sorry in some <laughs> ways, but I'm so glad in other ways that, you know, we're able to hear your story. And I mean, it's one of amazing, well, what's the word I'm looking for? Amazing achievement, ultimately, because you did achieve that independence, that, that chance to get some education. You've got your kids, you've got a family. You know, yet we've gone through a couple of, you know, changes of relationship like most people do. That's that's kind of par for the course these days. But what, um, if you were looking at yourself now and, and you took a step back and you looked at Nadia now as you are at the moment, would you say that, and I, I don't think the word is successful, but you you got somewhere with your life. You did something with your life. Do you feel that that, that is a fair comment? Well, yeah. Because I could be nothing. Like everyone else thought I would be. But they, if anyone's out here and anyone's listening to this, it's going through the same shit as I did. Let me tell you one thing. The, the best revenge you could take on anybody that has done you wrong is to prove them wrong. Dust yourself off. Do not give them the satisfaction of giving them their life. Don't. Keep going. Don't dwell on what they did. Just keep on going. Don't give them the satisfaction of taking your life again. Just take control of it. Just go. There's many kids I've helped. And I actually talk to this to this day. Actually, most of them. The best word of advice I told them was, everyone has a story. It's up to you to rewrite your ending. Do it. Rewrite your ending. End this chapter. Don't even look at this chapter anymore and rewrite the rest of your story. Because everyone will do something to you to wrong you. Everyone. This is the fact of life. Is whether or not you allow them to write your ending. Nadia, Michael, you know what? I'm going to leave it there. I usually have a question at the end, but you've just answered it. You know, I usually ask people, if you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? And you know what? You must be a mind reader because you just explained that <laughs> in an amazing way. And I just love the words that you used. You know, I, I think looking to the future... I think that's really important. If you've got your crystal ball in front of you, what's the future for Nadia? What what, do you, what would you like that to be? Honestly, I don't rewrite my future. I just rewrite now. Because you never guarantee your future. You're guaranteed right here, right now, and that's it. So, no. There would be nothing I would change right now. Nothing. If everything ended, I'd be happy because I succeeded where a lot of people thought I would not because I refused to give them the satisfaction. Simple as that. Nadia, I want to thank you so much for revealing your heart today. And I know that's been a tough journey for you, but you know what? I knew there was a story there. I knew there was a story that we had to get out there to, to people to hear where where you've come from and where you are now. It's been an incredible journey. Thank you for letting me be part of that. You're welcome. <laughs>
I'm going to go get a drink now. You can go and get a drink now. Of course, we're driving this afternoon, so we have to be very careful. But but listen, it's been, it's and I'm genuinely from the bottom of my heart, I mean, I just want to say thank you so much for revealing your soul because you know what? If this helps one person, one person out there, then we've done a great job. You know, I think that's the important thing. And for you being totally honest about it and putting your cards on the table, couldn't have asked for more from a colleague, from work colleague. And I so <laughs> love you to bits. I really do. I mean, from the bottom of my heart, I think, you know, you, you didn't, let's put it this way. You didn't disappoint me and, and be able to <laughs> tell me what your story was all about. And I'm so thank you for that. And I feel very privileged to have heard it firsthand. I really do. Well, I hope it helps someone. It will. And keep doing that bus driving, girl, because you're the best. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, take it, take it steady. And um, thank you again for, for allowing me to interview you. Okay. Bye. See you later. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Nadia Michael. Surviving trauma to become the best person with hope in your heart. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.